Well, hello, Clyde Christian Bible Church and listeners everywhere, whoever you might be. We're glad that you're here. It is a whole new world here in Alberta. Uh, Some of the COVID restrictions are loosening up. We have some very important announcements to make, and I will make those towards the end of this uh, session together. Uh, After the song, if you just want to skip the sermon and get right to the important announcements, again, it'll be after the song that we'll sing at the end. But... um, Because of the loosening restrictions, there are some questions that you probably have that I will answer later on here. We're going to get right into the sermon today, which is actually found in 1 Samuel 12. If you want to grab a Bible and stick a finger in uh, 1 Samuel 12, that would be great. Undoubtedly, though, the, the greatest Disney love song of all time is A Whole New World from Aladdin. I will not debate that fact. It's not the Lion King song. It's not the Beauty and the Beast song. It's a whole new world from Aladdin. A few years ago, our school used to broadcast live announcements every morning. One Valentine's Day, I thought it would be funny to serenade the entire school with this song as Aladdin serenaded Princess Jasmine. I think I nailed it. However, I created a whole new problem. A whole new problem! We had... A severely autistic boy in our school who had a particularly strong attachment to Disney princesses. The moment I sang I Can Show You the World, I created an expectation that there would be Disney princess songs sung by Mr. Lance each and every morning, which, of course, absolutely nobody wanted, except this very insistent young man. It started out as a great idea, but it created a whole new world. And not all the consequences of this whole new world, where Mr. Lance serenades eight-year-olds with Disney love songs, not all the consequences were positive. By the time 1 Samuel 12 rolls around, a similar thing is happening in the public, political, and theological lives of ancient Israel. Demanding a king sounded like a good idea. But Samuel has been insistent, and will be insistent again in today's passage, that the consequences of this new world they've demanded for themselves, with God's people supplanting him as their king in favor of a human monarch, the consequences are far from positive. Their kings will be a more intentionally selfish version of the little boy at the school. Instead of demanding more Disney songs, their greedy kings will demand their farms, their families, and even their freedoms. They will take, 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 as opposed to their true king, Yahweh, who gives and gives and gives whenever his people, the Israelites, cry out to him. We've already met this new king over the past couple weeks, Saul, the lanky farm boy from the smallest tribe in Israel, who initially cowered in fear behind the luggage before being fueled by the Spirit of God to serve as a deliverer who rescues Israel from her unjust, oppressive enemies. Saul is Israel's first king, the Anointed One, which in Hebrew is Messiah. He serves as a Messiah in chapter 11, but following this chapter, we will see that he doesn't remain a Messiah for long. The unintended negative consequences in Israel's whole new monarchy-ruled world will begin to unfold in the life of their first king, Saul. But first, oh wait, sorry, that was last week's thing. Before we get into that, right between Saul the success story in chapters 10 and 11 and Saul the failed experiment in every other chapter afterwards, right in between that we have chapter 12, this chapter. Samuel, not Saul, once again takes center stage as the foremost authority figure in Israel, and he delivers a powerhouse sermon that serves as a summary of everything we've examined so far in 1 Samuel, as well as a warning for everything that is to come. God's people stand on the threshold of a whole new world, but as they'll discover, nothing really changes. All of Israel, king included, share the same old purpose, 
which Samuel will make clear to all of us. Before we read that, a quick note about structure. The passage is divided into three easily discernible sections, all initiated with a call to stand. In section 1, Samuel declares that he is standing before all Israel, and his own leadership is to be put on trial. In section 2, Samuel demands that Israel stand before their God, and it's Yahweh's turn to have his divine leadership put to the test by examining his powerful acts in Israel's salvation history. And finally, in section 3, Samuel again demands that Israel stand and bear witness to a powerful demonstration of the God they must continue to cling to if they're to be saved in this whole new world they've created for themselves. So part 1, Samuel vindicated. Part 2, Yahweh vindicated. And part 3, Yahweh reminds them who he is, who they are, and what their shared covenantal relationship is to look like. Throughout this chapter, we'll also get subtle reminders about everything that's happened up to this point. So find your prince or princess, hop on a flying carpet, and turn in your Bibles to read 1 Samuel 12, beginning with section 1, verses 1 to 5. It says, Samuel said to all Israel, I have listened to everything you said to me and have set a king over you. Now you have a king as your leader. As for me, I am old and gray, and my sons are here with you. I have been your leader from my youth until this day. Here I stand. Testify against me in the presence of the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I accepted a bribe to make me shut my eyes? If I have done any of these, I will make it right. You have not cheated or oppressed us, they replied. You have not taken anything from anyone's hand. Samuel said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and also is anointed as witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. He is witness, they said. With all Israel listening intently, Samuel begins by reminding them that having a king was their idea. Samuel's washing his hands of the whole thing, knowing where it will eventually lead. He mentions his elderly age. While Samuel doesn't die until chapter 28, he also will not have as prominent a role in future stories as he does here. The elderly age and mention of his sons call to mind chapter 8. That's where Israel first demands a king. On the surface, they demand a king because Samuel is elderly and his sons are corrupt. But under the surface, there are deeper and more selfish motivations. Centralization of power, profit, and prestige by those in authority. That's what compels Israel to demand a king. And that's what compels Samuel to urge them that it's a bad idea. However, in chapter 8, God relents after noting that it's not Samuel they're rejecting as leader, but rather God himself. Today's chapter is a further reflection on that theme. A king has been chosen and anointed for service. He's even proven himself initially worthy of that anointing, being the agent of God's saving power in the face of oppression from the Ammonites. But this is a massive transition in the history of God's people. There's been a few massive transitions like this. First there was the Exodus, then the conquest of the Promised Land, then the time of the Judges. Through it all, God was their king, and he empowered certain people to be their leaders during these transition times. Moses and Aaron during the Exodus from Egypt, Joshua during the conquest of the Promised Land, and men and women like Gideon, Barak, Deborah, Jephthah, and Samson during the time of the Judges. And some of those names will pop up again in the next section, section 2. But now we've come to the time of Samuel. In these books that bear his name, Samuel represents the time of transition. He is a leader cut from the same cloth as the others I've just mentioned. Like Moses, or Joshua, or Gideon, Samuel was nobody special until God got a hold of him. 
Now he is the last of the judges, along with Saul in chapter 11. And he is the kingmaker, the one who holds authority over God's people, even over the anointed monarch, as they transition into this whole new world of kings and centralized power and military might. Samuel is the bridge. On one side of the bridge, he is the old school, representing Israel's history up to that point where God was their king, who raised up leaders among his people to serve as mighty deliverers whenever the people finally called out to him. And on the other side of the bridge, he is overseeing the transition into the new school, the monarchy. And Samuel's not shy about declaring which is better, old or new. All you have to do is compare what the leaders do with their power. Samuel has already warned them back in chapter 8 that their kings will be takers, reducing their people to slaves in their reckless pursuit of more wealth, more power, and more fame. And so he puts himself on trial to determine what kind of leadership he, and the old covenantal ways he represents, have demonstrated. Was Samuel a taker? He says to all of Israel, Here I stand. He is standing in their presence like as if he's on trial. And can anyone accuse me of taking what isn't mine? Did I take anyone's oxen? Calling to mind the story in chapter 6 of the Ark of the Covenant returning to Israel by ox cart. No, I never took your oxen. Did I take anyone's donkey? Calling to mind the search that Saul was undergoing when he stumbled into the kingship. No, I never took anyone's donkey. Have I cheated or oppressed anyone, taking power from the powerless? Have I taken bribes, calling to mind Hophni and Phinehas, the wicked sons of Eli? In all my long life, Samuel is asking, have you ever seen me take anything that wasn't my right to take? Goods, money, justice, sex, power. Can anyone here accuse me of taking these things unfairly? The entire nation of Israel answers back definitively, no, you've never cheated or oppressed us, and you've never taken anything from anyone's hand. The mention of hand calls to mind chapter 5, where the hand of Yahweh delivered Israel from the mighty hands of the Philistines after God chopped off the hands of their idol in the idol's own temple. But through all of this, through all this first section, Samuel is vindicated. He is totally innocent of any claims of injustice, oppression, or selfish leadership. By declaring himself innocent and vindicating his own leadership, Samuel's actually vindicating the entire system of leadership employed by God in Israel's early history, representative from Moses all the way up to Samuel. If Samuel represents the old life under the old covenant, and if Samuel is proven to be guilt-free, then what Samuel is demonstrating is that the old way, God's preferred system with him in charge and God's people constantly turning back to him, that the old way, represented by Samuel, is superior to the whole new king-ruled world that will come, a world defined by taking, power moves, oppression, injustice, and wealth inequality. In other words, Samuel isn't saying, look how great I am. What he's saying in verses 1-5 to is, look how great God's original plan for you was. You were cared for, you were provided for, and you were guided by the justice and mercy of Yahweh. You were free. All you had to do was cry out to him and your king would hear you because he loves you. As Samuel says in verse 5, God himself is witness to these claims of innocence, as he is witness to the sinful desires of Israel to have a king. With that in mind, Samuel now demands that the people stand and bear witness to those events in the past and see how powerful and purposeful God's kingly leadership has always been. Let's read section 2, verses 6 to 15. Then Samuel said to the people, It's the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your forefathers up out of Egypt. Now then, stand, 
Stand here, because I'm going to confront you with evidence before the Lord as to all the righteous acts performed by the Lord for you and your fathers. After Jacob entered Egypt, they cried to the Lord for help, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your forefathers out of Egypt and settled them in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, so he sold them into the hands of Sisera, the commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hands of the Philistines and the king of Moab, who fought against them. They cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned. We have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and Ashtoreths, the local idols. But now deliver us from the hands of our enemies, and we will serve you. Then the Lord sent Jeroboam, which is another name for Gideon, Barak, Jephthah, and Samuel, and he delivered you from the hands of your enemies on every side, so that you lived securely. But when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, No, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. Now, here is the king you have chosen, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him, and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord, and if you rebel against his commands, then his hands will be against you, as it was against your forefathers. Like a forceful defense attorney, Samuel gives evidence of God's righteous guidance, providence, and protection. For all the greatness of Samuel's style of human leadership, even those heroes of the old system were completely reliant on God. After all, it was the Lord who appointed Moses and who brought their ancestors up out of Egypt, as it says in verse 6. It was the Lord who rescued them when they cried out to him, which is the most fundamental basis of their relationship to their creator. They cry, and he hears. Unfortunately, however, their response to the God who hears them was one of betrayal. Or as it says in verse 9, they forgot the Lord their God. In order to have them realize their need for him, and to have them trust in him again, God sent enemies, including the Philistines, which calls to mind the enemies in chapters 4-7 to of this book. This caused them to move from forgetting about God to forgetting the idols they had sold themselves to, and remembering the divine love they had ignored for so long. Verses 10 and 11 outline the standard Old Testament cry to God, a cry of repentance and allegiance, that we have sinned, we have forsaken the Lord and served the idols of the neighboring nations around us, but now deliver us from the hands of our enemies, and we will serve you. Then God would send judges to rescue them, and the amazing part about the list of judges in verse 11 is that Samuel name drops himself. He includes himself in the list of judges, which is appropriate. He was a judge. These judges, or lowercase m, messiahs, were temporary saviors sent to rescue and deliver God's people from the worlds that they had created for themselves. The same thing would be necessary under the monarchy, a world they have likewise created for themselves, as Samuel reminds them in verse 12. It's a big problem. Again, they didn't need a king. They had a king, and that king just so happened to be the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving creator of everyone and everything in existence. The same king who led them out of Egypt, giving them identity and purpose, who led them into a land filled with hostile enemies and then proceeded to fight all their battles for them, all because he had made a promise to do so. A promise rooted in love. A covenant. It's to this covenant, the old system, which Israel had actively rejected time and again, right up to this demand for a king. It's to this covenant that Samuel makes his final appeal in defense of Yahweh. Samuel is, in fact, the ambassador to Israel of this very covenant. And in verses 14 and 15, he reminds them of the terms of this relational agreement between the father and his firstborn child, Israel. 
It says, If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him, and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord, and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you, as it, would, as it was against your ancestors. It's a classic if-then agreement, which is very common throughout the Old Testament. If the people will fear, serve, obey, follow, and not rebel, then good, which is a somewhat underwhelming response. Then what? Just good? Can't I have more than that? But I guess good is good. But if they fail to obey, and if they rebel against him, then his power and gracious hand will be against them. Interestingly, Samuel doesn't say his hand will be against you as it was against the Philistines or Ammonites, but rather he says as it was against your ancestors, the stubborn and rebellious generation who longed to return to Egypt, or who chose to worship stone idols and golden calves rather than Almighty God. If, then. Those are the terms. Israel's end of the bargain is to hear, obey, follow, and serve, same as it ever was. When they do, God will prove himself trustworthy. He will be vindicated once again, as will their communal faith in him. If the people turn to God, then he will demonstrate his readiness to give, 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 and give some more. But there's an interesting twist in that passage that I need to highlight, because it's crucially important for Israel's social, political, and theological understanding moving forward into the time of the kings. And it actually started way back in verse 3. There, Samuel had put himself on the defense stand in the rhetorical trial between the old way and the new world Israel has forced themselves into. Except, it's not just Samuel on the stand. Notice in verse 3, Samuel says, Here I stand, testify against me in the presence of the Lord and his anointed. Wherever Samuel is addressing the nation from, probably some high mountain around, I don't know where, but wherever he is addressing the nation from, he's not alone. The Lord's anointed one is beside him. And who is the anointed one at this point in Israel's history? I'll give you a second to think about it. That's right, Andrew. King Saul. 200 points to you for getting the answer right. Way to go, Andrew. King Saul is standing up there this whole time for this whole speech. But he's not the one in power. Not even close. Samuel is the one in power. Samuel is the undisputed champion of God's people. Samuel is the voice, and soon, the mighty hand of God made manifest in human flesh. Not Saul. The king is merely a bystander. This speech must have gotten so awkward for Saul. Keep that in mind when I reread verses 13 and 14. Now here is the king you have chosen, and Samuel probably literally turned to and indicated Saul. Here is your king, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. Did you hear that? If both you and the king. The king is not given any special role, no special authority. He is not the dispenser of God's wisdom, guidance, or power. As we'll see, Samuel retains that crucial role. The king's role is absolutely no different than that of the common Israelite. He too is subject to the covenantal give and take of his relationship with Yahweh. The king is almost an afterthought in Samuel's speech. Here's your king, and he'd better listen to and obey God just like you do, or he will be subject to the same curses. Skipping ahead to the last verse of the chapter, verse 25, this gets highlighted once again, where it says, If you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will perish, or be swept away, as the Hebrew says. You and your king will be swept away. 
the king will not have the power to avoid the punishment that all people are subject to. He is not exempt from these commands. Other earthly kings, they could do whatever they want, not Israel's king. If he is wayward, negligent, unjust, or corrupt, if he takes and takes and takes as Samuel has warned he will do, then he too will be subject to the back of God's hand of righteous judgment. How the people go, so goes the king, and how the king goes, so goes the people. Why? Because in this whole new world of Israel's revamped power structure, the king is merely just another Israelite, one with extra anointed responsibility, but also one who is still subject to the ancient covenant that cannot be undone just because a bunch of elders decided they wanted a king one day. Israel can have their king, but that king had better be prepared to answer to the true ruler of Israel. As a side note, the kings had also better be prepared to answer to the true leaders of God's people, and it ain't the kings. The true leaders of God's people, other than God himself, are the prophets. Samuel is about to establish that sacred office, too, the office of prophet, one which he will step into as the first prophet of Israel. He was a priest by trade, he was the last of the judges, he was the greatest kingmaker, and he was the first prophet. He was every form of leader possible throughout the history of Israel, all at once. No wonder this book's named after him. We're about to read section 3, verses 16 to 15, and that's where we'll see what the role of a prophet looks like. But first, a summary of, of section 2. Samuel has illustrated how trustworthy God has been, even when, maybe especially when, his people have proven themselves entirely unfaithful. If Samuel is representative of the old covenant that Israel is attempting to move away from, here he points to their history to show that they, including their king, cannot escape the promises God has made to them, nor should they want to. The promises are great and therefore their benefit. Which brings us to section 3. Samuel has vindicated himself. He has vindicated God. They have both been proven right and good. He's shown the necessity of clinging to the old ways of faith, following in obedience, crying out for rescue when they go astray. Well, before checking out for the night, Samuel has one heck of a closing statement before they step into this whole new world of kings and kingdoms. Let's read verses 16 to 25. Now then, stand still. There's that standing again. Stand still and see this great thing the Lord is about to do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest now? I will call upon the Lord to send thunder and rain, and you will realize what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. Then Samuel called upon the Lord. And that same day the Lord sent thunder and rain. So all the people stood in awe of the Lord and of Samuel. The people all said to Samuel, Pray to the Lord your God for your servants so that we will not die, for we have added to all our other sins the evil of asking for a king. Do not be afraid, Samuel replied. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you because they are useless. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people, because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you, and I will teach you the way that is good and right. But be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. Yet if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will be swept away. Section 1. Here I stand and my leadership is good, as evidenced by the fact that I never selfishly take. That's Samuel. Section 2. 
Here you stand so you can see that God's righteous leadership is good, as evidenced by the fact that you've always been a bunch of screw-ups, but he loves you anyway. And now we get to section three. Here you stand, Simon declares again, and would you like a quiet little reminder of who God is, who I am, and who you are? Well, then how about the shock and awe of a devastating thunderstorm in the middle of a season where our part of the world never sees rain, a rain which will flatten all your crops in a show of judgment and wrath that will force every one of you to trust in God's loving providence? How about that? Oh, what's that? You are awestruck and dumbfounded and moderately terrified, and you wish to confess your many communal sins to God? And what else? You need me, Samuel, to be the mediator between yourselves and the holy righteous God whom you are standing in awe of? Well, you know what? Sure, I can do that for you. But here's my crucial warning to each and every one of you, including you, Saul, because the king is not exempt from this lesson. My warning is this. Do not forget this absolutely pivotal moment in the life and history of Israel. This is a moment that marks a decisive break in history. You are about to step into a whole new world, you collective of ignorant, selfish, but deeply beloved people. Once you step onto this magic carpet, you will never be the same. Except, no, Samuel reminds them, no, it's not that everything is changing just because you have a king. God's thunder and your earnest repentance and my intercession on your behalf, they're all for one reason, to remind you that nothing has changed. Sure, in one sense, everything is changing with the institution of the monarchy, but in another larger sense, absolutely nothing has changed. You have done evil. No surprise, all people are selfish and idolatrous and proud. All people usurp the throne that only God has a right to. Your enormous sinfulness is not new, but neither is the colossal, unimaginable grace of the God you serve. He will turn your evil desire for a king into something great. In fact, God will fully redeem your wicked monarchy when the greatest of all things arises from the line of kings. He is a man, a God-man, who will be called the King of Kings, and he will be the one who you cannot help but stand in awe of and bow before in reverent appreciation. But until then, remember who you are and remember who your God is. In other words, remember your covenant. Turn to God and serve him wholeheartedly. Give up your worthless idols who cannot rescue you. Only God can save you in the way you need, so not some stony carved image. And he absolutely will save you, because saving you brings him the glory he deserves. And saving you demonstrates how much you please him, how much he loves you, even when you've been horribly wayward. That's who he is, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in abundant love for you. And that's who you are, beloved. You are wayward, but you're invited back home. Oh, and by the way, here's who I am. I, Samuel, with one foot in the old ways of the judges and one foot in the new ways of the prophets. Here's who I am. I am your mediator. I will pray for you before God, and I will give you all the glorious instructions for a life of holiness, righteousness, and goodness that he gives to me to give to you. In other words, I will bring your words to God, and I will bring God's words to you. I will be the template for all prophets to come, including Nathan, who will prophesy to King David including Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, including Hosea, Joel, Jonah, Malachi, all the way up to John the Baptist. They'll all have the same role, bring the people's needs up to God and bring what God needs the people to hear down to them. Sometimes what you need is something like this dreadful rainstorm that just decimated your wheat harvest, something that will get you to cry out to the Lord for rescue. Sometimes what the prophets will bring you will be judgment, 
because that's what you need. Actually, usually it's judgment. Actually, it's it's always judgment. But it's also promises for when you turn back to him. And finally, I'll close with these last words, Samuel urges. I'll close with a blessing and a curse in the oldest tradition of our people. And it says in verses 24 and 25, Be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. But, Samuel adds, I can't leave without a reminder that this whole monarchy nonsense is a pathetically sinful grasp for legitimacy and power. So I'll finish my great farewell speech with this. And pay attention, Saul, you're going to need to hear this too. If you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will be swept away. And with that, having bridged two distinct eras of Israelite history, the judges and the kings, having reminded the people of their covenantal responsibilities, having demonstrated the greatness and glory of the God they're covenantally bound to, having instituted the office of prophet in the nation of Israel, and having brought the mighty thunder of judgment, after all the power and authority of chapter 12, Samuel steps into a whole new world, with Saul the anointed one, and with every Hebrew man, woman, and child alongside him. In this whole new world, there will be dreadful consequences, as when I sang Disney love songs at school. But in the end, nothing is truly different about this new world they're stepping into. They still need to follow, obey, and serve their God. They still need to give him glory. They still need to cry out to him when they've wandered too close to power, pride, idolatry, and immorality. They still need Yahweh like they need bread and breath and belonging. Chapter 12 is a powerhouse chapter. I'm going to let Walter Brueggemann summarize it beautifully. He says, Chapter 12 stands as an odd theological reflection in the middle of Saul's narrative in the middle of a weighty and difficult crisis concerning the nature of political leadership. It's as if Samuel knew this was his last best chance. If he doesn't make this case now, he'll never have another chance to make it. In the covenantal atmosphere of this great chapter, there's no Philistines, no Ammonites, no external threats. Here, there is only Yahweh, Samuel, the people, the old tradition, the sureness of if-then promises, and the authority to say, do not fear. Brueggemann continues, Some might think Samuel's proposal to remain true to the Old Covenant where God is king. Some might say that Samuel's proposal is an escape from the realities and complexities of Israel's real world. But that real world exhausts our capacity for right moral judgment. We lose our way in ethical compromise, self-deception, and selfish calculations. Chapter 12 asserts without reservation that there's another form of divine leadership that merits and must have our very attention. There is a leadership that doesn't take that does not seek its own selfish desires. There's a community that could serve faithfully. This chapter intends to renew in ancient Israel a moral vision that had been skewed by fear, power plotting, and vested interest. The renewed moral vision of Israel's history is as urgent now as it was then, lest we all be swept away, in the words of verse 25. I love those paragraphs by Walter Brueggemann because they so beautifully clarify what 1 Samuel 12 means for us today. And by today, I mean literally today, May 17th. This week, our province loosened some of its coronavirus regulations, as I mentioned before. People keep asking for life to go back to normal, but there's a problem with this whole new post-COVID world that we'll be stepping into. And the problem is this. Normal North American life is far from normal. We shouldn't desire returning back to what we consider normal. Because what we consider normal is ugly and corrupted. Our world is a world of kings, where every one of us solidly middle-class, mostly white people, is our own kind of monarch. 
The things we choose to normalize in our society are just as disgusting and distorted as the Baals and Ashtoreths and other idols of Israel's day. We champion materialism, individualism, wealth accumulation, vanity, and empty pleasure. We normalize exhaustion, consumption, exploitation, and environmental depletion. We demand for ourselves what we deny for others. We divide from our neighbor. We judge those who are different. We withhold power from the vulnerable, and we hoard resources. We value military superiority and a judicial system based on punishment rather than redemption. We ignore, or worse, deny, past and present injustices done to those around us. In other words, North Americans are obsessed with take, take, take. Our entire society is based on the very warnings that Samuel gave to Israel, and it's about as far from normal in the eyes of our Creator as possible. So no, I don't want a whole new world that looks like the one we left behind in mid-March. That world is one where life and love are drowned in a sea of me. To move into a beautiful new world, we need to embrace the message of Samuel, that even though our world has changed, our purpose has not. See, Israel wanted a king for two differing reasons. One, to legitimize themselves in the eyes of their neighbors, they wanted their neighbors to respect them, and two, to establish power over those same neighbors. Both those reasons are selfish and corrupt reasons to do anything in life, whether you're a Middle Eastern superpower in 1000 BC or whether you are a farmer in Clyde, Alberta in 2020. Those are terrible reasons to do anything. But they're the same temptations that we as the church tend to fall into. There's a spectrum of failure that every person can be placed on somewhere. On one hand, we want to dominate our neighbors through moral certainty, self-righteous judgment, and political control. We want to prove that we are in and they are out, whoever they might be. We want power. On the other hand, we also want to be liked and accepted by our neighbors. We want to be relevant. We want to avoid offending others, and so we water down a gospel that is necessarily offensive at times, simply because the human heart needs to be offended to wake out of its stupor. We need the thunder of Jesus' words to sell all we have and give to the poor, to render to Caesar what is Caesar's, to walk extra miles, turn other cheeks, love the unlovable, pray for our enemies, and be perfect like our Father in heaven is perfect. Those are necessarily offensive statements, and they are at the very core of our identities as followers of the same God who thundered over the wheat fields. And sometimes the people those statements offend the most are long-term Christians like myself. I abhor church power structures that lend themselves to violence, pride, and self-righteousness. But at the other end of that spectrum, I tend to want people to like me so much that I never offer anything of spiritual value to them. I want to be legitimized by my friends and neighbors. It's rooted in love, these desires I have to be liked, but it can turn empty and vain. It's just as problematic as ancient Israel's desire to be legitimized in the eyes of their pagan neighbors just because one of them wears a fancy crown. We cannot forget our purpose, and obsessing over power or obsessing over likability rather than the will of God is forgetting our purpose. So, a post-COVID world has the potential to be a beautiful new world, but really, there shouldn't be anything new at all. We should pursue a renewed world, guided by renewed commitment to our established purpose, loving God and loving neighbors as ourselves. Or, in the words of Samuel, a world where we are sure to fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all our hearts, considering what great things He has done for us. So yes, we are stepping into a whole new world. A whole new world. 
a new fantastic point of view. Don't you dare close your eyes to quote the song, which is my favorite line in the song. It is so subtly menacing. Don't you dare close your eyes. But the same is true for us. We dare not close our eyes. Look instead to the thundering power of God's love and see what he has done, is doing, and will do among you and the rest of his people. Everything is about to change, but really, nothing has changed. We still know who our God is, and we still only ever really know who we are when we know his powerful love. And we still stand in awe of our Messiah. And that's what we'll do now. We'll stand in awe of Jesus in the same way the Israelites stood in awe before Samuel and Yahweh, and we will sing of his powerful love. And we'll do so with leadership from our good friend David Harris. Let's sing, I Stand in Awe. I stand in awe. You are beautiful beyond description. So I mentioned that there's a couple of important announcements, and I'm going to make those now. The first announcement and most important announcement is even though they are loosening the restrictions around COVID-19, even though churches are allowed to meet, we will still not be doing so. And that is a difficult decision that we as uh, church leaders, uh, the four church leadership families came to the other day. What the government says church can look like will actually look nothing like church. There can't be any singing, there can't be any communion, and we can only have 12 to 15 people in here at a time. 
we're also concerned about a second wave of of coronavirus and and most of our demographic some of you listening who fit that demographic are the people who are most at risk for contracting the virus so for the time being we are going to not have in church services even though we would technically be allowed to um we will reassess that whenever phase 2 happens whenever the restrictions loosen even more we will reassess and hopefully start having in church services at that at that time second announcement even though we are not going to have in church uh services we're all still hungry for some deeper connection some more face to face personal connection so starting next week may 24th we are going to start trying online church we're going to try this through zoom which is a video chat app on your computer or smartphone or tablet uh, so you can download the zoom app ahead of time all i would need from you is your email address which you can call me text me email me facebook me if you get me your email then i will send you a link to zoom or marnie will send you a link to zoom and you we can have a face to face meeting and in this face to face meeting which will take place sunday morning at 10:30 just like regular which means it'll take place at 10:38 knowing Clyde Christian Bible Church. In this meeting we will have some singing, we will have uh communion and a brief message, we'll have prayer time and we'll just it'll just be good to see each other and catch up a little bit. It's going to be chaos, it's going to be a steep learning curve, but please send me your email address so that uh we can get you set up for our our Zoom church meeting on May 24th and every Sunday afterward. So that's the first two announcements the third announcement is if those two things aren't enough and you are still feeling the strain of social distancing and social isolation i'm going to start doing something that i maybe should have been doing a lot earlier i'm going to start making myself available on sunday afternoons for in person prayer time um this will be by appointment only please don't drop in that way we can sort of follow covid regulations a little better but if you need in person prayer uh then you can set up an appointment with me for Sunday afternoon where we'll meet at the church and pray together. I'd be happy to make myself available for that or if you just want to call um as I've said in every one of these podcast episodes I am very much available if you need me uh, for anything please just please just call don't hesitate. So with that all with all that being said it is a brave new world that we are going into but really it's the same it's the same purposes we've always had we still stand in awe of our messiah we still bring him glory and praise by loving him and by loving our neighbors around us let's pray god you are good you are savior you are messiah you are redeemer and rescuer we know uh, that even in these really challenging times we've had the last few months um we know that you are still sovereign you are still uh, the god who answers when we cry out to him and we look forward to seeing what this new world will look like that we step into post covid-19 but we also know ultimately that it's the same world as it ever was we are still called to love our neighbors selflessly and we're still called to give all that we have to you we're still called to follow you to obey you to trust you to cry out to you just as they did in ancient israel help us to be a people who follow you closely for your glory help us to seek your will and not our own will in this brave new world help us to make you the king and not ourselves and we pray all these things in your name jesus amen all right we'll see you online a week from today uh look, looking forward to that even though it'll be a bit of chaos but we'll see you then bye everyone 
Everything is about to change, but really, nothing has changed. They still need Yahweh like they need bread and breath and belonging. No, I never took your oxen. It's like, it's funny, because as soon as the pressure's on, you start thinking, all these bodily functions start happening, like I'm going to belch, and, and <laughs> yeah, all of a sudden, saliva, and tickle on the nose, and I'm, I'm aware of all these weird things happening. Isn't that strange? Yeah. How the mind thinks, eh? Oh my goodness, I'm being recorded, and 45 people are going to hear this. <laughs> A whole new problem.